You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Hi, Ron Ennis is a writer, musician, and student of medicine based in the Pacific Northwest. Their first novel is Leech. Thank you for joining me, Hiron. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, when anybody sees the word leech, especially in the title of a novel, especially in a novel with an illustration that's kind of like yours at the beginning, you know, what you think of are the things you will see inevitably in any movie that involves the jungle or the Florida Everglades where people have to cross a river. They cross the river and they come out with these large black segmented worms hanging off of their legs and they start screaming and everybody in the audience squiggles. And that's the general meaning of leech. But it occurred to me this morning that leech is a verb as well as a noun. Mm-hmm. And I think the verb meaning also uh, goes heavily into this book. So talk about just uh, writing a book and deciding to title it Leech. Yeah, so uh, the title was something I arrived at probably two or three years after I started writing the book. Because <laughs> beyond then it was, or like before that it was just called, you know, the the winter book or the snow book or the gothic book. But uh, I ended up choosing leech because it has so many different meanings and all of them, I think, are relevant to the story, right? Like a leech is a sort of a slang term for a doctor because of an old practice of leeching and bloodletting. Um, It is, of course, you know, a parasite. And it's also as you said, it's it's a verb, and it's a verb in many different contexts, like people can leech off each other, uh, you know, entire, you know, entire, like, landowning classes are, are you know, parasitizing the, the workers beneath them, and that's a big theme in, in leech as well, so it has a lot of different meanings, and that is why I sort of landed on leech in the end. And also, one substance can leach into another, so they start to yes. blend. And that's how I think uh, quite pertinent to this book. You know, uh, God, uh, 15, 10 years ago, a book called Neurotribes came out. Mm. And in it, uh, the author kind of, I think, introduced us, the the world at large, to the idea of the spectrum, you know, the autism spectrum. There, It's one way or another, and... and introduce us to this idea that you know there's it's not just black or white there's a continuum in all Mm -hmm. things and i think that idea of the continuum in all things is really central act you know to this novel and i'd like you to just talk about maybe your personal experience of the various spectrums that we all uh, you know encounter in our lives and how that informs this novel yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, if anyone reads the novel, they will sort of see an evolution of the main character and the narrator from one type of person to another, or to be more specific, many people, many bodies all at once, narrowing down to one. And I find it intriguing, not just from like, a writing exercise standpoint where, you know, it's really fun to think about uh, identity as a sort of delocalized thing and thinking about how a narrator or how anyone really would think and act and talk to themselves while occupying so many different bodies that necessarily will have social identities put on them, things like gender, race, etc. And so from just a, a, the standpoint of, of building a narrative that would be fun and interesting, um, 
I wanted to sort of explore like how how an entity might think of itself as it occupies all these sort of different states. And then as the narrative goes on and we see this sort of localization of identity into one essentially human being with one mind, we sort of experience what it's like to have something of a, an infinite potential sort of whittled down and into into one one being and in my own life i i have gone you know through many stages and many masks uh i'm trans so there's that whole thing as well uh but i also really like to think about how many aspects of our sort of neural state and our, our personalities and, and the, the beautiful, weird, odd sort of goop that makes up our bodies and souls. And how much of that is external, how much of that is internal, and how much is, is due to processes that are sort of beyond our control. Um, one of the, or a couple of the parasitic inspirations for the Institute, which is the protagonist of of this novel, which is a, a parasitic hive mind, were were uh, parasites that that change behaviors in their hosts, and it can be something like really dramatic, like a guinea worm, which uh, once it's ready to begin its life cycle again, uh, it will. So it enters the host, it reproduces in the host, and then when it wants to exit the host, it induces inflammation in the skin of the lower limbs. So people are itchy and burning and they, they instinctively try to seek out water and then submerge their skin in water, which is how the guinea worm exits the host, like through the skin. And, and it that's a part of its life cycle is dependent on changing the behavior of the bodies in which it lives. And like, there are some less dramatic examples, like toxoplasmosis is, is a, a microorganism that lives uh, on and around cats. And it can be really dangerous for people who are immunocompromised or pregnant, but it, it very slightly changes behavior in humans, uh, mostly in the domain of getting more and more cats. So people who are infected with toxo tend to have a lot of cats or people who have a lot of cats tend, are tended to be infected with toxo. So <laughs> we, it's kind of hard to tell like the chicken and egg of that, that problem, but like there, we do know that there are these ways that, that the organisms that live on and inside us change our behavior and our moods and our health. Like there have been recent uh, links to like depression, risk of depression and like the population of the gut microbiome. And so, yeah, it's, it's just thinking about being a human, like as an ecosystem that is not only changing all the time in, in terms of identity and chemical makeup, but it's actually not entirely one single organism, but more like an ecosystem. Let, let's get to the uh, setup of this book. Uh, this has a, a classic Gothic setup. Uh, doctor arrives at a dark castle, but it's not your normal doctor and it's not your normal dark castle. Talk about creating this kind of far-flung world, which is reminiscent, of, for me, of William Hope Hodgson, some of the kind of older practitioners of science fiction and fantasy who would, like, meld the two and make them kind of indistinguishable from one another. Yeah, uh, I think that the setting for this book originally came from uh, just growing up hiking in the Rockies and having a sort of a close relationship with mountains and, and alpine scenes in general. And I kind of wanted something horrible to happen in a really beautiful like sort of alpine backdrop and the gothic setting sort of evolved from there because it's going to be cold it's going to be isolated it's going to be mountainous and you know you sort of think of 
the Arctic chase from Frankenstein at that point. And so I think the setting came first, the genre came next. And from there, it was sort of a, a, an exercise and in uh, marrying my interests in, in microbiology to uh, the kinds of genres that I grew up reading. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was a huge, huge fan of uh, Poe. I would carry around just like a giant like tome of, of his, like all of his short stories and all of his poems. And he was kind of a kind of a half sci-fi dude, uh, sort of surreal fantasy and gothic horror. And I feel like that that might have been a one of the bigger inspirations for for Leech, honestly. But I have sort of been immersed in like sci-fi fantasy and gothic books since I was a kid and they've all kind of blended in my head at this point where <laughs> some of them are virtually indistinguishable like I one of my favorite series of all time is Mervyn Ke- Peake's Gormenghast oh my god it's so fantastic I bought all of his books I bought all those like you wrote some poetry books illustrated I mean he's an yeah. amazing guy yeah just an amazing dude and like but like I read Gormenghast so long ago that like I couldn't really tell you a lot about what happens in it because I haven't reread it recently but like the the feeling has like to bring it back to the verb we were talking about it has leached into my soul right and now it kind of just changed the way that I thought about literature and interacted with it and it I definitely do for a reread but he is one of my favorites Absolutely. Now, for me, uh, one of the things that just stood about, out about this book was the the narration and the perspective of, of the narrator. You referred to this earlier. We, we meet the narrator. He's an unnamed doctor, or they're an unnamed doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, they arrive at a at a the, this god forbidden frozen castle run by this crazy baron who's you know really not a nice person and, <laughs> and, and because the his predecessor their predecessor has died now um we slowly learn that this is not a single human but it it you're narrating from this really unique perspective and i think that that i've never encountered that voice nobody i've ever particularly read has tried that before and I think you succeed masterfully so talk about writing from one perspective that is also many perspectives yeah uh it it was very fun very difficult sometimes but it was also extremely useful for world building like I I didn't really anticipate that it would be so so much like so much fun and sometimes necessary to have one body just like sit, be isolated in one spot doing one task. And then there might be a relevant aspect of world building I would need to like bring in sort of randomly to, to further the narrative within that little chamber that the one body finds itself in. And like at that point, we can just say, there's another perspective over here that, you know, is, is dealing with something relevant or. Yes, it you know, sounds very useful a, in terms of writer and as a writer, in ter- it's like a, adding a whole new tool to your uh, toolkit as a writer. In a sense, it's like having the internet as a writer. <laughs> you are yeah, the yeah. internet. <laughs> you are the internet. You can bring up all these little facts that you need, you know, just, at the snap of your fingers and uh it's all I felt like cheating honestly it it really did (laughs) and like not abusing that power was was kind of uh part of what I had to to control because like I really do love world building and there's so much that I took out of the book that just because it wasn't relevant that I did love and it it was kind of like training myself not to be everywhere all at once and not to 
overdo it on the omniscient narrator thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd had to whittle down your own godhood. Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah, once your ego gets that big, it gets kind of hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Now, uh, for me, uh, one of the things I thought was was really interesting was that the the great power of science fiction and fantasy and all the weird genres that, that use elements of the fantastic is that they allow the writer to externalize things that are in our world that are really hard to, to, to deal with or talk about and, and you know turn them into monsters, into technologies, into societies, into whatever they need to, to talk about it. And I think that you do a masterful job in this book of using the the elements of the fantastic to get at all sorts of stuff that's really hard to talk about. You know, we on Earth here, we have, when we talk about, you know, the, the things that we don't like, we'll talk about the, the, this person's politics are terrible. These, these policies are terrible. But it's not necessarily the personal. The person may be, may in fact <laughs> be terrible what it happens is that people are colonized by ideas. When you talk about an idea like capitalism and say capitalism is really bad, <laughs> that's just kind of like make people glaze up, turn away, turn off their brain, and and run to another room. When you mm. say, "Well, there's a world where there's a parasite." <laughs> <laughs> that can see through many eyes and and et cetera, et cetera. Then all of a sudden they're gonna say, "Well, that's not. I cannot read that story." And I, I think you do a masterful job at using your elements of the fantastic to, to rearrange our world into like a giant gooey mess that it really <laughs> actually is. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's. The more I write fiction, the more I realize that the only way I can actually begin to understand the world around me is to take it and compartmentalize it into like a fictional narrative, write it, have it sort of like tell me what it's trying to say. And then I have to sort of internalize what I have externalized like in a different <laughs> way and be like, oh, that's what I was saying this whole time, huh? interesting <laughs> and i don't know if that's true for everyone but <laughs> well that's an interesting idea that uh, in externalizing uh the the ideas you're talking about you're actually once you start writing them down and putting sitting them down into a world you have to explore your own internal responses mm -hmm. both to the world you've created and the world you live in at the same time mm-hmm yeah, yeah. And it, it I, I don't know if this is true for every writer, because I, you know, this is my first book, I haven't really been on the, the scene for that long. I, I've done like one workshop in my life. But um, I constantly sort of like, write things that surprise me. And characters do things that surprise me. And the, you know, the book went places that I didn't anticipate it would go. And there are like themes and subplots that jumped out and demanded to be examined uh, that I, you know, had no idea that I would end up examining, but in retrospect seem sort of inevitable. Like if you're going to write about parasitism, you're going to have to talk about themes of bodily autonomy and free choice and uh, the ways in which human beings parasitize each other socially as well as, you know, organisms do physically. You know, um, one thing I was talking about, you know, earlier about the, the idea of a spectrum, and we think that different forms of art, we see them as very separate. Mm -hmm. For example, there are movies, there are TV shows, there are books, there are there is music. But really, once you, especially in your work, encounter something, it's possible to see that there's really a spectrum <laughs> there mm -hmm. too and one mm -hmm. of the re places I encountered this was in a particularly gooey scene that's part way through the book I don't want <laughs> don't want to necessarily talk about what what exactly is happening but it's a common event in our world rendered 
in a way that was reminiscent of both John Carpenter's The Thing and, you know, about 17 David Cronenberg movies. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, wow, this is where, you know, movies, your inspiration, I think, is it's clearly from the movies, yet it's being rendered here in prose. And I think that seeing that smear from the movies into, into prose so clearly and so ickly was, you know, it was kind of a revelation for me because I, I have always thought of the two as somewhat, you know, uh, siloed off from one another and better for it because movies do things, you know, do all the work that when the reader does it in like your narrative, it's far more effective internally in terms of mm. affecting you. So, uh, talk about uh, the your influence beyond just the written word. Yeah, uh, I am a big fan of horror films. I did grow up watching them. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town and I went to like a conservative Christian school. So the only thing to do on the weekends was uh, go to like Blockbuster and rent like the goriest, most satanic things I could, I could think of. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's my experience growing up with movies. Uh, but I also have, I'm also lucky enough that I have a lot of uh, contact with the, the physical real life world of, of medicine. And uh, a lot of the, what comes from the book uh, well, to say that I wrote the majority of the book before I started medical school. And then like, I finished a lot of editing while I was in medical school. And a lot of the sort of overtones that were added after were reactions that I had that were unexpected to events that I was witnessing and or helping out with. Like, for instance, the, the, scariest thing that I've been to is not like trauma surgery. It's a birth. It's always a birth. Births are terrifying. And I didn't expect that this sort of, you know, very natural, very commonplace, very joyful event could instill such existential terror to me because like having another being, like human being growing inside you and then coming out of you, and especially in that manner is just it's something else. It's very alien. And then like contrasting that to like my first autopsy was like a very serene and very sort of relaxing uh, experience for me. And just, yeah, a lot of, (laughs) a lot of the, the, the weird, uh, you know, a lot of the weird images and internal reactions and feelings in the book are things that you can, you know, sort of glean from the visual medium, like films, like, you know, you can always see the look on an actor's face when they discover that, you know, there's something growing inside them, or you can always see the the blood and guts and gore and your descriptions of that are, you know, they can be beautiful or horrible and you can work with that and get really far with that. But I, I feel like a lot of what makes the written word very special, like you like you mentioned before, is this sort of uh, the ability to have a deeper lens into the internal reactions of, of the people who are witnessing these really gooey, disgusting things. And they're, they're not always what you expect. And that was a very fun, fun part of writing this book. You know, um, one of the things that I thought yeah, that worked really well for this book was the, you know, your medical background because you let the uh, your medical knowledge and, and medical jargon kind of infiltrate this book like the tendrils of some kind of infiltrating <laughs> a mycological infection. Yeah. And uh, the, I found that really interesting. I was wondering if you got any blowback from that in the editorial process and just uh, you know making that choice this is a, like you know writing it's like somebody who's writing about the internet all of a sudden 
starts talking about routers and IP. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, there was there was some pretty decent criticism uh, when I would get a little bit too far, like when I would delve too deeply and sort of perseverate or micromanage the the Latin or Greek terms or, you know, go a little bit too far into the medicine where the story is lost and I appreciate everyone who uh, helped me not do that, uh, but there were some, there were some moments when that had to be balanced out with like the truth of the character themselves. Like the narrator would use these terms. The narrator does think in this way, and it was sort of a delicate balance between like not losing the reader in the weeds and having the narrator be sort of like a believable expert on these these sorts of things and I yeah it was really funny like in the in the line editing with my editor there are a lot of words that he would flag and be like do you have to use this word and then like maybe he'd come back later because he'd he'd look it up in a medical context and be like yeah never mind that one that one that's the word (laughs) you know too uh, you do a really interesting job uh, uh, subtly creating um, economic situations and, and, you know, relationships, you know, on a bigger scale, you know, work relationships, uh, that kind of thing in, in this world. And, and I wonder if you'd like talk, talk about that in terms of, you know, the, the science fiction and the world building aspects. Uh, this is something, you know, like Frank Herbert did a pretty masterful job in, in Dune in creating, using, you know, the ecology of Dune to create uh, uh, an economic system to show that, you know, how those two are intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, the book, most of the book takes place in, in this little mining town in the far north called uh, Verdira, where they pretty much it's it's an extractive economy like our own and so you would expect the same sort of extractive economic relationships to arise between people i mean not that it's inevitable but that it it makes sense in that context and and this world is basically our world as well post 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 a couple of apocalypses and a couple thousand years in the future um so people are always sort of digging up and trying to revitalize, uh, you know, these, these oppressive structures that have dominated our lives for so, so, so many years. Um, And so the sort of economic and social ecology of, of our own world is, is recreated a little bit in Leech. And a big part of that is the relationship that professionalism and very sort of skilled, you know, academic institutions have with these kind of overarching and a lot of times colonialist or imperialist power structures and how these institutions can serve or deny these structures. And it's it's kind of hard to read Leech devoid of the context of the pandemic and the broken healthcare system in which a lot of people who will be reading the book live. And it was, yeah, the, the book was just, it was, it sort of demanded to be to be written about the the privileged relationship that someone like a doctor might have with essentially that the hands that feed them right and the decisions that they have to make to reinforce their own survival in a system that is essentially unfair and there are you know, there are definitely lines in the book that refer to that, like, you know, if everyone's healthy, nobody needs a doctor, like, this institute has no real incentive to fix the problems that it 
tends to treat because then it would have no, you know, ecological niche in which to live. You know, um, for me, one of the things that, and you just referred to this, that I liked about the book was the, the slight blurriness of the setting, and you dial that in, you drop in notes of where we are, but... I mean, when you first open it up, you know, it's, you know, is this a, 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 a star system far, far away a long mm-hmm. time ago or, or you know, and yet as you go, you you drop hints, really enticing <laughs> hints that make <laughs> one want to return to this world. So talk about uh, setting this up. And it sounds like it's, you had said earlier that you'd extracted a, quite a bit of uh, backstory, I guess would be the, the term, to make it um, more live in within the time frame in which it takes place. Um, so talk about, you know, how, when you created this backdrop for this, how did you write it down or did you just like uh, let it simmer like, you know, uh, rain gathering in the cloud waiting to rain down upon the pages? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I do, <laughs> when I start, when I wrote this book and, and when I sort of build worlds in general, I do the worst possible thing, which is I have a whole bunch of like really, really detailed notes about the world, like in a separate Word document. Mm. And then I don't follow any of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so, the best thing. That That's why it seems so kind of adventurous when you when for me when I read read it it seems like you're embarked upon an adventure in your own world and you're not quite sure of where everything is but it is all there for a reason somewhere sometimes yeah it's the, it's there somewhere it's like it's you know it's just out of sight and god just writing writing in general is a is a i feel like the whole process is like somebody throws a like a sheet over you and puts you in like a huge room and is like, okay, describe this now. And you kind of have to stumble around from place to place. And some objects you return to like more than once and you are able to like have a good sense of what it is, how big it is, how important it is to the function of the room. And then as you keep writing the book and you explore like more of the surface area of everything that's going on, you start to get a better sense of how the room is shaped. But I don't think that any book truly like goes through like all the little drawers and like opens the cupboards. Like you might open one cupboard and be like, that's not relevant and then close it again. Like I did with like so many parts of this book. But yeah, there there was like, definitely writing is an exercise in discovering your own writing, which is kind of scary, but very, very fun, I think. Now, um... I particularly like kind of like horror movies with monsters and, and you know, uh, along the lines of Alien or, or uh, The Thing. Those are the two of the, you know, the the master most masterful screen versions. But there's also uh, From Beyond, uh, mm. old Stuart Gordon movie. Uh, talk about just uh, creating kind of the monsters and the monster scenes and, and you know, integrating those in a way that, still lets the human element speak through it. And also, too, turning those kind of monsters into characters as opposed to into just, you know, one of the things that is underwhelming about Jaws is in the end, it, it's just a shark and all it wants to do is eat you. It doesn't... It it's doesn't, a shark. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, it either eats me or it doesn't, but it's not like I'm going to try to build a city and convince me to come live in the city and then eat me like one toe at a time for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a lot more insidious. Yeah, and I, I think, like, to be honest, this is kind of a simple like a really simple analysis, but like, I think that honestly, size is kind of the scariest thing. Like the more it deviates from the kind of monsters that you think of and you grow up seeing, like, you know, wolves, lions, tigers, bears, et cetera, jaws, the scarier it gets for me. Like there are are two kinds of monsters that truly scare me. And those are like kaiju. So something that is so big, it's literally unstoppable 
and it's going, it's like a planet destroyer and we have no chance or something tiny, something microscopic that's insidious that can get inside you and you don't necessarily know that it's there. And so sort of starting from the, the point of the kinds of monsters that truly scare me, uh, Leech doesn't have any kaiju, at least that I know of. There could be some off screen and there are some sort of uh, some creepy, creepy elk that live in the mountains that are pretty big, but uh, no like Lovecraftian sort of existential cosmic terror gods to deal with. And so it's all going to be small things, things that infiltrate and grow inside you. And the, the truly like monstrous parts of that are moments of revelation, right? Like, I think not to say anything in too detail, but the scene that you were referring to earlier uh, in the middle of the book that was very gooey and, and gross uh, is sort of a, a, a scene of revelation. The beginning where the first autopsy on the, the first death is performed is a revelation. The moment when the moment of dread when you realize that something has been growing and living inside you, but you haven't been able to see it until now. And immediately seeing that monster and then the next step being just this flood of dread of how long has this been going on? Is there anything I can do about it? Am I already infected? It, a lot of like the, the sort of monstrous scenes that I like to read and like to write are scenes that have most of the, the, the emotional drama kind of occurring because the monster is finally revealed, not that the monster is here, it's gonna get me, I gotta run. Cause that's like too, too straightforward of an understanding of what this monster is and what this monster is about. And so for me, the spookiest thing is what is left unsaid and the questions that are left unanswered as the monster sort of appears in the narrative. The existence of the monster is the, the biggest threat of all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's one of the things I thought was masterfully done was the slow loss of connection to to the the main character experiences to his external cells scattered you know hither and yon and, and it struck me that right now one of the things that we have in this world that we have that happened in in my long and, and aged lifetime is that uh, we're always connected to everyone 24 mm -hmm. 7 and there's no severing that connection i mean you mm -hmm. you can put your cell phone down and you know your computer's gonna beep at you you can put your you know throw your computer in the trash and, and there's you know somebody's gonna call you maybe on your regular phone you'll see something on tv but there's no way it's hard at least to escape it and i thought there the scene as the characters is like kind of pulled into his own flesh just reminded me of like you know what it's like when, when the internet's down yeah <laughs> i i used to, i used to joke that that leech was about uh it was actually a, a, an extended metaphor for losing cell service when you're in the mountains <laughs> uh, yeah i used to be in it so i i was always like the first to know when the internet is down rick yeah. <laughs> the IT first responder. Yeah, yeah, I was the IT first responder. That was when that was a thing and it wasn't done by, you know, automated routers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um so also too, I, I love that, you know, gradually characters who are somewhat anonymous acquire character and it's it's in a sense it, character is, leeches slowly into them as you know they change so talk about the i and it's fascinating as a reader to think about the character arcs 
that these mm. that that the uh, the characters in this novel go through. So, um, talk about creating character arcs for characters who exist in more than one body or who end up existing in one body. Yeah. Oh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> it it doesn't really sort of follow the, the standard procedure of character starts one way, something happens, they think about it for a while, and then character ends up a different way. But I, I think it... So for, like, for the narrator, I feel like a lot of their arc is dependent on reclamation of memory and personhood and independence and the arc for a character that goes from having many many bodies and then uh, to speak metaphorically losing you know service and being disconnected from the rest of the bodies and having you being left in one I mean that is that will be a life-changing event for a hive mind, of course, but it also forces one to exist within one's own sort of mutable, fragile, mortal, single body, which is what we do every day, but I imagine it would be a very terrifying experience for something that is used to having many parts of itself. And I imagine like it might like imagine that you know you're a single cell of a human body and you're shed while you're still alive and you have all of the the capacity to know the implications of that and to know that the collective itself doesn't notice that you're gone and like you have no <laughs> you have no friends you're like alone in this world and it, it would be just such a such a bizarre experience and one that would spoilers you want me to to get in in this program but um there are other changes that take place <laughs> as well within the narr- within the narrator's single body not just existing as a single body well, this is something that I think we could bring up somewhat safely in that we meet the narrator as a reader. Here I am, I'm reading this book, and it's a doctor, and the, the narrator, they're, they're replacing somebody named Stanislaus. We learned that early on. <laughs> and and uh, so I'm thinking through, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, well, this doctor's male, and, and now, <laughs> this yes, may, this may or may not prove to be the case. And I, I thought that she did a masterful job at putting us in the shoes of, uh, of uncertain sexuality again, uh, showing us the spectrum of sexuality that we're discovering even now. I mean, it's it, yeah. it, it, it exists. It's always existed, but we've never seen it before. Now we can kind of see it. It's like you know, or by now, most people understand the sexual or the spectrum of autism, and, and you know, know what we now call neurodiversity. People understand mm-hmm. that and they accept it and say, "Sure, that's that's a thing. It's real." Uh, there mm-hmm. are now like. We've just kind of opened the door onto a new spectrum and going, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The like, way they were 20 not, years ago. Is... When, when, yeah, when people yeah. were talking about autism. So talk about uh, writing this because I think it's, again, it's a masterful way you put us inside the perspective. And yeah, there's this <laughs> is anybody else. This is, this is one of those really bizarre. Uh, things about <laughs> experiencing the world, externalizing everything into <laughs> fiction, and then re-internalizing that. Because like, to be honest, when I first started this book, I kind of just wanted to challenge the assumptions that a, a reader might have about the sex of the narrator. And, uh, you know, and it, it gets most people. It's like that old joke about the, the surgeon who can't operate on a boy because he's their son. And 
nobody realizes it's because the surgeon is a woman. And uh, I don't know if you've heard that riddle, but it, it is a very funny one. Um, and then as I sort of progressed through the book and was able to examine and sort of live vicariously through this narrator who experiences the imposition of sex and gender and identity on it in many different ways and many different forms. It was a just like a really, really interesting exercise in sort of exploring the ways in which occupying a lot of different states at once can be both disorienting and grounding. And in the case of the Institute, which is, you know, a parasite, it doesn't really care that much about being misgendered. It doesn't really care about what social sort of expectations that human beings put on its body because it has, you know, this very privileged position of being virtually the only one that can administer medical aid if they need it. So they better not, you know, <laughs> they better not go crazy with that. But it was kind of like one of those things where <laughs> like at the beginning of writing this novel, I'm like, okay, uh, I think it'll be fun to play with gender expectations a little bit. And then by the time I wrote the last sentence, I had come out as trans and was already talking to like a top surgeon. <laughs> like, it was like one, one of those things that was just like such a weird thorough ex like exploration of self and externalization of things that have just sort of been living inside me since childhood and then I look at this big book I wrote and I'm like oh <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> you know too uh, when it comes to spectra one spectra that is often overlooked is the spectrum between a parasite and a symbiote yeah yeah and we think of that's true of ideas as well as critters in that mm -hmm. some you know ideas like say fascism that's a parasite mm -hmm. democracy is more of a symbiote mm -hmm. capitalism kind of sits on top and goes back and forth depending on how it, it's used and it's I a think, very self-serving organism, capitalism. Yeah. So, uh, I, and you play with that idea of the the symbiote and the parasite uh, well in this book because it really is a symbiote sometimes, or, and there are parasites. And what happens when when you know uh, two when one decides the other threatens the its own existence, as in when mm -hmm. uh, democracy thinks that fascism is winning. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now it's time mm -hmm. to mix it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, and like, you know, in my sort of, I don't study parasites exclusively for a living, but like, you know, in my experience of biology education, we, we sort of like, divide things up into like, you know, parasites, mutualists, and then commensalists where like one of them maybe gains something, but the other one just like kind of doesn't care. And I wanted to write about something that is technically parasitic, might be aspiring to mutualism, but might also be in a position where it's impossible to be a mutualist. And this is because, okay, like physically, this is a parasite. It lives inside someone, it leaches their nutrients. The body itself on a chemical and physiological level doesn't really gain anything from it, but it does lose some things from it. And there are like, you know, some, in this fictional world, there are effects that the parasite takes or the institute there are several parasites. So when I talk about the narrator, I'll, I'll say the Institute, there are effects that the Institute has on the body that aren't necessarily like terrible. Like you're small if you're infected and you know, things like that. But I think where the question comes up about the Institute being a mutualist or like a true parasite comes more in a, in a social 
social sense. Because what the Institute is able to provide for humanity is a stable and constant access to a science that in some ways has been lost to time. And it is very overt about how it performs these beneficial acts to humanity as a whole and how it sort of thinks of itself as a keeper of people and that it takes care of them. It ensures the survival of both species in a more robust way, uh, which from a scientific standpoint is absolutely mutualist, like the whole species gains from it. But where the issue comes in is that it really has to uh, essentially obliterate your psyche to do it, right? So on an individual level, everything social and emotional is, is pretty much put on the wayside, it's, it's lost. And so the question then becomes like, is the Institute truly a symbiote or is it a parasite or is it neither, is it both? And I hoped to not quite answer that question in the book and, and leave it up to people. Uh, the question I have is, uh, and I'm hoping that I have intuited the answer, there are more stories to be said in this future, I trust. Yeah, yeah, they're okay, there. <laughs> they're there. Not I don't have like a direct sequel, but um, the, yeah, the world is just so vast in time and space. And uh, just by virtue of, of being a world in which things are periodically just destroyed and reborn, it can, uh, it has a lot of potential to lead to a lot of really weird places and a really, a lot of really weird microclimates in which I think that a lot of fun stories can be told. So. I've been speaking with Hyron Ennis. Their new novel is A Leech. Keep it gooey, Hyron. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You too. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.